If you'll turn to Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, I want to talk about being a game changer. Everything changed. I was thinking about things in history that changed the course of history. Think about those things that were game changers. Pearl Harbor, that was a game changer, wasn't it? It changed the course of the war. If we move a little closer in time, there's other game changers. Um, How about this little device? Some would say this is a game changer. Some would say this has destroyed my life. I don't know. You know, game changer. Um, What about um, the housing crash of 2009 or 80 years before that, the Great Depression in 1929? Game changer. For you sports fans, last year's ownership change of the Dodgers. Game changer, right? There's all kinds of things that when it happens, it changes the direction. But in this passage, we're going to see the ultimate game changer of all of life. And that's when Jesus Christ came to set the captives free. Amen? Let's just ask God to direct us this morning. Heavenly Father, as we look at your game-changing move by sending your Son, it changed everything. It changed everything. Lord, we know that it altered the course of history, and so we take a look at your word today, and may it change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Take your uh, notes out right here, and you can follow along with me if you'd like to, to write. This whole idea, Paul is continuing his thought from verse 29 of chapter 3 of Galatians. He says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so what Paul's going to do now in Galatians chapter 4 in these next 20 verses is give one of the clearest explanations of the gospel, and he's going to contrast it with this danger of going back spiritually and looking backwards or trying to hold on to the things that got you to where you came to a point of decision in Christ. In fact, he wants to illustrate once again this terrible yoke of legalism, of tradition, of trying to hold on to the past while Christ is trying to move you into the future. And he's going to do something where he's going to appeal to their heads. He's going to be very direct. And he's going to soften up by the end of the text and uh, appeal to their hearts. And so when we understand this principle fully, it's a game changer. It's going to change the way you view how you live the Christian life. So let's look at Paul's comparison in verses 1 through 11. And he uses this analogy of an heir uh, by using the, the tool of a Roman father in verses 1 through 3. It says this, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from the slave Uh, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Verse 3. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Until this kid comes of age. What what is he talking about? When in, in, in Roman law, And in in Roman culture, a child would be raised by managers and guardians. And oftentimes, these were actually slaves of the household. And they would raise this kid. And for all practical purposes, this kid has no rights. He's two, he's three. He's being raised by the guardians. 
He has very little to do with feeling like he's a family member, and uh, he's subservient to everything they tell him to do. Uh, they're going to raise him. In, in a British uh, society, you, they had governesses. I, I think some of you probably can relate to this. You've seen this in principle. How many of you are Downton Abbey fans? You actually admit that you watch it. There are 93 women and four men of Four men. Four of us guys watch that. Yeah. And uh, there, that's questionable. That's questionable. But you see that principle of uh, little uh, Matthew and Mary Crawley's little baby being raised by these uh, workers there at Downton Abbey. And he will someday realize he's worth a lot of money. I mean, a lot of money. But at that point, he's no different than a slave. And so... The bottom line is, when did this child become a man? Now, I, one of the problems for a guy like me who gets into this text, has 20 verses and only 40 minutes, is there are so many really good rabbit trails. So I'm going to skip some of those, but I'm going to put them in my notes, and then they'll be put online, and then you can see all the things that I didn't tell you this morning about I wanted to talk about, but I couldn't. But the bottom line is... We define what becoming a man is by a whole bunch of different ways, right? In Jewish law, when did someone become a man? And even today, when does a, a guy become a man in Jewish law? When you're how old? Twelve. And we have a little thing called the bar mitzvah. And if you're a girl, it's called the bat mitzvah. And if you've ever been to the wailing wall, you see all kinds of kids being, having their bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. It happened on the first Sabbath after a boy turned 12. Under Greek law... That happened, uh, they were under the care of a uh, family until age 18, and then they're kind of conscripted from 18 to 20, and they became a cadet under the direction of the state. And there was a whole process there, and they were put into clans, and I won't go into all that, and they, they were coming out at, in this festival of what they call apaturia. And one of the unique things in Greek society, when you became a man, uh, your long hair was cut off and sacrificed to the gods. For some of you that grew up in the 70s, your parents would have wished you were Greek because you had that long hair, and they would have liked to either sacrifice you or that hair to the gods, right? A 70s child. In Roman law, they came, became a man between ages 14 to 17, and there was this, this, uh, this uh, festival called uh, Liberalia where they actually wore two different togas. Now, I've always wondered about toga parties. I never did that in college, but the child's toga had this little kind of purple band around the bottom, and when he became a man, he exchanged that child's toga for the white toga of manhood. And so they did something else that was very interesting. During that, they would give away one of their toys. Typically, the boy would give away a ball of some sort, and a girl would give away her doll, and they would sacrifice it or give it to Apollo. And that may be what Paul is referring to. Think about this. Back in 1 Corinthians 13, putting away childish things. I think it's a reference to that uh, context in history. Now, when do we become a man, and a, a man or a woman, especially men, in, um, in American culture? Well, some say you become a man when you're 16 and you can drive. No, when you become 16, that's when your parents really began to pray for you and their safety. Um, maybe it's military service. That's when you become a man. Or voting age. Or maybe drinking, legal drinking age. Uh, we have all these rites of passages that in our culture say this is what makes a man. But the bottom line, spiritually, what Paul is saying here. Until we come of age spiritually and through the saving trust that we put in Jesus Christ, 
In essence, all of us are slaves of unbelief in that we're imprisoned under what he calls these elemental things. Well, what are these elemental things? Now, remember, you have Greek readers, you have Jewish believers. There's this kind of syncretism between kind of holding on to their Jewish past, but they're living in a culture that's anything but Jewish. And so a lot of Bible scholars says you got to look at these elemental things. Go back to Colossians Chapter 2, verse 8, if you read Colossians 2, 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of this world. So maybe it's, the, for some, they think it refers to these deities, like in Greek mythology, or these elementary principles relates to astrology. Uh, I think it relates to the elements of self-made, human-made, man-made religion. And yet, before we just dismiss and say, oh, we don't ever do that, just hang on to that thought. I want you to begin to think, how do we hang on to those things in the past of kind of human, self-made, elementary principles of religion? And so, remember, the heart of Jewish religion during New Testament times was this system of following meticulously this rabbinic code and these traditions, and they added the Talmuds, all these things you have to do, and the Pharisees lived it to perfection, and they're just weary of under this yoke, this burden of having to do this and do that and live according to the law. Isn't that why he says, my yoke is what? Easy. It's light. I don't put that burden of, of the rabbinic law on your shoulders. And so, Inevitably, whatever you translate these elementary principles to be, the core of it is the essence is this idea. It's the idea of achieving divine acceptance or meriting favor by God by your what? By your own efforts. That somehow that you've got to earn it so that God will accept you. That you somehow have to save yourself by doing or being something other than missing the fact that what does God's word say? It's not what you do, it's what he did, right? But sometimes we're so deceived about that. We think we're doing the right thing. We think we're pleasing God, but we miss the elemental piece that Jesus died for you, forgave you. And it is not about you. It's not about what you do. You can't save yourself. Now, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think about how I illustrate this. And doesn't God do funny things to try to help us illustrate a text where he brings an experience into your life that you would have not wished on yourself, but it will be a perfect illustration 12 hours later. So I get home yesterday, and I realize my garage door will not go up. Now, this is a problem because there's a car in there, and I think, oh, that's no problem. I'll, I'm sure it's jammed. I'll just pull the little thing down. It, you can slip up the garage door. You can get your car out because Cheryl and I had to go two different directions. Well, it's not doing it. Well, I come in and look in my garage, and I'm thinking, is a spring of a garage door supposed to be in four parts? <laughs> now, I'm not a garage door expert, but my guess is I think that's where the broken piece is, but I'm still not tracking about what it means to open the garage door, all right? I'm just thinking, well, I'll pull the little cord, and then I'll just push it up. Note to self, when the springs are broken, that door now weighs over 1,200 pounds. <laughs> I have been working out. <clears throat> I'm thinking this is, but I'm not thinking, I'm not exactly sure what it is, so I try to push it, and I push it. I try, I couldn't do it. I could not lift that door on my own. 
I needed the great redeemer, a la garage door repairman, to come. Now, the analogy breaks down that Jesus came, he paid for the price, he relieves that yoke of the garage door bondage in our life. But the problem is he still charged me 600 bucks. All right, so that's where the analogy breaks down. But think about this, how we do this in our own first life. We're going to try to do it on our own. And then sometimes we even enlist other people to help us do it on our own. In fact, I got my wife out there. We were both trying to lift it. We could not do it. We could not do it. And that's what happens when we try to reach God to do the impossible. We can't do it. We need Jesus Christ. He's the one who breaks that burden. Now, he's referring to in these first few verses, remember, he's hammered and hammered about the law for three chapters, right? And I was thinking how easy it is if we just could just live by, if we just do this, 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 we're good to go. John Stott says this. He says, just as during a child's early years, his guardian may ill-treat him and even tyrannize him in ways that the father never intended, so the devil has exploited God's good law in order to tyrannize men in ways they never intended. And just reviewing again how the law isn't bad, but it's been twisted by Satan. Think about relationship to sin. John Stott goes on. God intended the law to reveal sin and drive men to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and drive men to despair. God's plan meant that the law was an interim step to a man's justification. Satan uses it as the final step to his condemnation. And then lastly, God meant the law to be a stepping stone on the road to liberty, to freedom. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac that traps us with the idea that there is no way out, that there is no escape. And that's what happens when you get entrapped by man-made religion of trying to be and do, and we've kind of... Uh, gotten into this whole thing called sin management. And so what is the solution? Well, he gives us the solution in verses 4 through 7. Look at the Redeemer's Father. Look at verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, then an heir through God. So the Redeemer's father did these things. First of all, his provision. What was his provision? Look at verse 4. When the fullness of time came, God did something. That was the game changer. When the fullness of time came. Now think of how... This perfect storm of all the things that came together when Christ came. Politically, it's the right time. Rome's in charge. They had this Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There was roads everywhere. Apostles and preachers are now set up so they can travel and share the gospel. It's the right thing culturally. It's the right time. Alexander the Greek had established the Greek language as the dominant language. And so their influence succeeded Rome. And so as a world rule, everybody's speaking Greek so they can speak a common language. It's the right time religiously. Finally, the Jews have kind of gotten away from Baal worship and all the idol worship of, of their past. And they've built synagogues. They're seeking this Messiah. It's the perfect storm. It was the perfect time for Christ to come. And he sent his son. Now, we know from John 1 that God sent his son. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Write down John 1.14, verse uh, 118. 
And then it says he was born of a woman. Why would he put that little phrase in there, born of a woman? Uh, we know that's Mary, a young Jewish woman named Mary. It illustrates his humanity. And let me remind you again that in the first four centuries, every time there's an heir uh, theologically about the deity of Christ, whether they overemphasize his deity to the de-emphasis of his humanity or vice versa, four of the major uh, issues, Gnosticism and all those things, come out of not understanding this balance between him being fully God and fully man. So Paul's reminding him he was born of a woman. Um, uh, someone said it this way, he had to be God to have the power of Savior, and he had to be man to have the position of the substitute. And then he's under the law. He was born into a Jewish family, a good Jewish family. He's going to be raised with those expectations. So he knows experientially as a man what it felt like to live under the crushing burden of the law, but he's God. So what was the plan? Now this, friends, this is the money section of the text, right? So just verses 5 through 7, we could spend an entire sermon just right here in those next few verses. Look at that. To redeem those who are under the law... And they became sons. He sent his spirit. They are no longer a slave but a son, and he was heirs. There are four things in this text. You want to underline or circle four words from that section. Four things God is part of his plan. Number one, there's redemption. And write this down. We are saved. Redemption. Redemption. We were purchased just like slaves. Now, none of us really understand the concept of slaves uh, as well as it did in this context, but some of you know uh, John Newton, who wrote the, the song Amazing Grace, came to faith in Christ at age 23 when he was on a ship that was about to sink. He realizes that he needs a Savior and the immorality of his life and all the things. He cries out to God for mercy. He's saved and not ever wanting to forget the depth of, the, of what he'd been rescued from some, many years later. Um, if you went into his home and above the mantle, above his fireplace, he had written these, this verse from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15. It says, And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondsman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. God plucked you out of your situation. Now, some of you, that experience happened years ago. And maybe you were just a child and you're thinking, yeah, God redeemed me, but, you know, I don't have much of a testimony. Like, like how bad can you be when you're six? You know? It's like I left the wanton drugs of milk, you know, and I was a rebellious little seven-year-old. You know, we, we kind of minimize those early childhood redemption experiences. But I don't care whether you were six or you were 26 or you were 56. When God saved you, it wasn't about you. He came down and plucked you out of the miry clay, it says in the book of Psalms. And I think sometimes we forget how miraculous that is, how unbelievable his grace is that he just pulled us out of whatever pit we found ourselves in. For those of you who come to faith in Christ later in your life, you have testimony of that, don't you? You're like, oh, my goodness, my gracious, thank you, Lord, because you look backwards and go, Oh, my goodness. And you look forward and go, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. So he redeems us, all right? Then secondly, he says we're adopted. So not only are we saved, we are his sons. We are his sons. He chose us. It's a compound word used there for uh, the idea of 
of placing and the idea of a sonship being placed on someone who doesn't deserve it. In, in Roman rule, there are oftentimes wealthy landowners who had no children. They would adopt a slave child and make that child their own. I'm involved in a ministry in Mexico called Yugo, and we have a baby's home. And there are many, many babies who need adoption, but they're kind of left to die. And they come, we take them into our baby's home. It's Parajorninos. And in that baby's home, they are cared for. And uh, over the past couple of years, we seven of those babies have adopted. And I always love how our director calls it. They've been adopted into their forever family. And so they, these, they're often uh, families adopt them from a little church down there called Calvary Chapel, Rosarito Beach. And they have, every time one of those babies from the children's home get adopted, they have a baby dedication in that church. And that church says, we're going to support that family as they raise this child as their own. Some of you were adopted. And you struggled with, oh, I was adopted. I was, you know, where's my natural-born parents? But the bottom line, every adopted kid knows is that what they have different from every other kid that's ever been born into a natural family is that that parent made a choice and they chose you. Never forget that God chose you. You were adopted. Then thirdly, he says, he sent forth the spirit of his son. In other words, he sent the Holy Spirit. So not only do we have redemption, we have adoption. Thirdly, we have confirmation or certification. Not only are we saved, not only are we sons, we are sealed. We're sealed. It's, it's, a, it's a down payment. It's the idea that the Holy Spirit says it's proof that we are sons. And that happens at the moment of salvation. Now, some um, churches teach that there's some second blessing that you get subsequent to that. We believe that you get the Holy Spirit when you become a Christian. Now, the question is whether the Holy Spirit gets all of you that's the whole process of lordship that goes on. So let's, let's let this represent the point of salvation. In fact, um, we'll let the, do this. Um, would you help me out here? Would you just stand up here? So this is going to represent salvation, right? So just stand there. So everything that happens prior to this, this is you're born over here, to the point of coming to faith in Christ, that's the salvation process, right? Now stand on this side. Everything that happens after the cross, that's the sanctification process, right? And then somewhere over here, what happens? You, you don't fall asleep, you die, right? So you die, and everything from that point in heaven is the glorification process, right? And so the problem is, we think that this stuff on this side of the cross somehow saves us, and we got to do that stuff to get to this point. You've got your chronology messed up. Amen? So this is what saves us. Christ chose us. He adopted us. He predestined us. All those things. Then after the fact, he's making you conform to the image of his son. In fact, the last verse about Christ being informed of you, we'll look at, look at what God does in your life along that journey. You can just take that down with you and hold on to it for a second because I'll use it again, I think. Maybe. Only God knows for sure. Okay, so... so that's the redemption piece, the adoption piece, the sealing piece. And then it says we have this inheritance. Not only are we saved, that we're sons, we're sealed. Now we are secure. There's an inheritance. Our future's not in doubt. Our future's not in doubt. Now think about that. If you're adopted, sometimes kids say, I wonder if parents can, if he chose us, can they, can he, can they give them back? Do I have to, like, I don't like you anymore. I'm sending you home. Well, that might happen in the foster system, 
But once you're adopted, you're adopted. In the same way, God says your future is secure. It is secure. You don't have to worry about that. And in fact, it's so secure, there's a future inheritance. I'm guaranteeing that. Um, <clears throat> and sometimes we kind of forget that there's this wonderful inheritance that God gave us spiritually. Uh, we don't even know about it. Uh, I was thinking about a time um, several years ago. We were poor. You know, I was just a pastor, and money's tight, and I'm a youth pastor, and, and uh, uh, my uncle died. And um, so we fly from Minnesota, and my uncle, who was not really a, a very spiritual man, a religious man, not a church-going guy, before he had died, I had shared with him kind of one of those deathbed conversions, and he placed his faith in Jesus Christ, and his wife did as well. And so his wife had died previously. I did, their, uh, I did her funeral. I did my Uncle Lloyd's funeral. And so the next morning after that, that funeral, I, we're just having breakfast. All the family members had flown in, and they opened the will, and they're going to read the will. And he wasn't a wealthy man, but he had some property and some assets, and, and, and um, they're, they're reading the will. Well, I'm thinking this is not my my business, my brother, or my mom and dad, and the brothers and sisters, that's a private family time. I'm just, you know, nephew, I'm going to go. And I went into the living room. I wasn't part of the family meeting. I just thought I'd, I'd get out of their way. And there, I remember my Uncle Bill reading the law, uh, the will, and it said, and I leave all my earthly goods to my nephews, John Lee Irwin and Daryl Hunt. Now, there's like, it's a big family. There's like 60 nephews. And he chooses to leave his entire state to me and to my cousin. There's no good reason why he left it to me. There was, I, I didn't deserve it. Uh, I wasn't particularly close to him. Um, he left me inheritance. And I think about that. By the way, so what did you do with the money? How much was it? <laughs> it wasn't that much. But I tell you what, it was enough to pay for a brand, well, a used Dodge Caravan. Because we were in that, there you go. I bought, a little, I bought American. Anyway, uh, I bought this car, and I kept thinking, you know, back in the day, that was like a lot of money. I think it was like $14,000. I mean, it was big bucks. And I was driving around. Every time I, I would drove that, I was thankful for my inheritance from my uncle. But so much more. Think about that spiritually. You have a spiritual inheritance that you have from God. Now, he gets, you know, he's kind of laying the case, and then Paul kind of lays into him. Look at the confrontation now. He's kind of laid it out, and look at the confrontation in verses 8 through 11. However, at the time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless, there it is, elemental things again, right, to which you deserve to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Verse 11, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. So Paul's confrontation, he says, first of all, there's some substitute gods. Look at verse 8. That you have this gracious gift of sonship and you substitute stuff for God. We're not, God's, uh, we're not, we're not Satan's slave. We're God's sons. And he's always, Satan will always try to give us substitute gods to somehow mask what our deep need is. And so, therefore, we, we, are, we today are slaves to substitute gods, right? What are those substitute gods in our lives? 
What are those things that we sometimes substitute in place of God? Whether you're on this side of the cross or that side of the cross. When it's on this side of the cross, we may think that power and prestige and position or fame or fortune, feel that somehow those things make us feel better about ourselves. And so I believe those substitute gods he's talking about there are these man-made gods. He's probably referring, referring to kind of Greek mythology uh, and that kind of thing, but I think it's anything that we use to put in front of a, a, our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can fill in the blank. What is your substitute God? So he says, there's some serious questions here. Look at verses 9 and 10. And this is where it, it's kind of, um, it's a tricky text here. It says, that, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Let's stop there for a second. If you ever wondered this balance ring. God choosing you and you choosing God, he clarifies God chose you. Romans 5 8. While you're at sinners, Christ died for you. He chose you and he knew you. We know that from Psalm 139 before you were born. God knows you before you came to know him. And so um, he's asking this, he's looking at how could you be turning back to those weak and worthless things, the elemental things, the ABCs of kind of legalism. And he, he gives some examples of days like, you know, like the Sabbath. Now, he's not saying the Sabbath's not important. It just doesn't save you. Or the seasons, the going back to Passover and Pentecost and tabernacles and uh, the years, you know, the Sabbath year, every seventh year, looking backwards. Now, I don't think anybody's here, but did any of you grow up Jewish and became a Christian? You're a completed Jew. Anybody here? We have one person. Um, my son is dating a girl that, it's a cool story. Hava came here for Christmas Cafe. They've been talking about spiritual things, kind of the deal, I can't really date you, but, you know, you can go to church with me thing. And so she started coming to church, missionary dating, I think we call it. Anyway, um, and then a week later, uh, she came to faith in Jesus Christ at the Christmas Eve service of my former church, Your Belinda Friends. And she's come to faith in Christ. She's being discipled by the singles pastor's wife. She's in Faith 101 class on Friday night. And she is growing like a weed. In fact, it's funny. She's in the same Bible study with a bunch of women studying Gideon that many of our women are. And so Cheryl and they've talked on the phone. She's, she's, Christ has come into her life. And I'm reading this passage, but Hava is kind of stuck right now because she's confused a bit about what about this stuff in the past? And we can see that her, her sanctification process is going to take some time because she said to John the other day, hey, I haven't, been to, I haven't been to synagogue in a while. And John kind of, I can see like Paul looking at the Galatians, John kind of looked at her and said, Hava, why do you need to go to the synagogue? You're a Christian. Yeah, but I feel like I should go to the synagogue. See how easy it is, even some, and we do that. I feel like I should do this, or I have to do this because I'll feel better, or it'll merit favor with God. And so she's kind of figuring that all out, and we're praying for her that, in fact, quite frankly, we're praying that maybe they ought to visit a, a, a Christian church that's a messianic church, you know, like Ben David in Orange County, where there's a lot of completed Jews where they can kind of, kind of see how this all fits together. And so there's sincere confusion. He says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. That's a, that's a guy who's mentored some folks, and he's, he's frustrated, isn't he? he? He's disappointed. He's concerned that they're slipping back 
into this, you know, kind of legalism, that, that they think that they have to discharge some kind of duty and, and do all these things to the perfect letter of the law. But you're saved by grace. You live by grace. Now, lest we think we don't do this, I want to illustrate that for us. Doug, come on up here. Because I think we do the same thing. Let's put you right up in front, right where everybody can see you, all right? And so, don't we do that when we kind of evaluate how spiritual someone is? I'm going to let each of these uh, colored uh, rags kind of represent the things that we do. We think, now, this is good. I mean, some Christians are good, but I'm really good. In fact, you know, I do these things. And let's see how those play out. Give me your left arm. So what is, what's the first thing we say? We kind of evaluate our spiritual life by what? What we say, hey, I'm, I'm pretty good if I'm doing this. Huh? What kind of church you are? I go to a good Bible-believing church. All right, that's good. That's one. What else do we do? What else do we say? This makes someone a really good Christian. Turn around here. Being a wanna leader. Oh, my. Give me both. Put your hands behind your back. That, that really locks you up. I wish that was the first time I heard that. Because you're, you're like working for them for life, all right? Well, want a leader, okay? What? Is Carolyn in the room? Oh, is Casey here? This is just between us. All right. What stays in first service stays in first service. All right. So what's another thing? What do we say? This is, I mean, this is pleases God. This kind of makes me pretty good. Huh? Okay. A Bible study, you got to have a quiet time, you know, every day, quiet time. In fact, that really got to have a lot of quiet time. Okay, what else makes us really, I and mean, you're a good Christian if you do this. Huh? Tithing. Oh, yeah. You got to tithe. Yeah, you got to give money to the church. And that kind of is hard sometimes. What else? Supporting missions, being in a life group. Okay. This could be painful. We'll just yeah, stay. Right. All right. What else? Acts of service. I mean, it goes on and on. Before you know, you're all bound up saying, I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to be that. I got to go there. I got to serve here. I got... None of it's wrong. None of it's bad in and of itself. But none of that saves you, does it? None of it. What saves you? Jesus Christ died on the cross. He purchased a place for you in heaven. You can sit down. You were redeemed. You were adopted. You were sealed. You have an inheritance. And your future is secure. All this is good stuff. But it's after the cross. Not before the cross. Do you realize how many misconceptions people who are far from God have about this one idea? Think about it. I'm on a football crew in Orange County with five other guys. They swear like sailors. They find out I'm a Christian. Oh, I'm sorry, Padre. They thought I was a Catholic priest, I guess. We'll, we'll clean up our language. They think being a Christian is cleaning up your language. Or I go do a wedding. No one in that wedding knows the Lord except for a few Christians. And afterwards, I'm told, I'm so glad you brought God into this ceremony because for them, that ceremony was just a civil activity and they didn't really see where Jesus fit in their marriage. It goes on and on. We have these perceptions. What do I have to do to be saved? You can take this for you. 
And Jesus can... I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. Yeah. So what Jesus... Here's what the analogy is. It changes, or as we complete, is that ultimately God takes off the shackles. He takes away all the things that we say that we have to do. He unbinds us, and he takes that. And he, and he says that sin in the past, you can take the cross... He says it's as far as the east is from the west. It's, it's no more part of our experience. But yet, as Christians, we kind of get that stuff confused with the most important stuff. In verses 12 through 20, he now kind of reverses field and he shows compassion to them. And he appeals to them in verse 12. He says, brothers, I entreat you to become as I am, for also I have become as you are. You did me no wrong. He goes from the head to the heart, from confrontation to compassion, from exhortation to encouragement. He says, this is not a theological appeal now. This is a personal appeal. Listen to what I'm saying because it's so vitally important. He's not spanking them. He's saying, I'm begging you. Be satisfied in Christ. Be satisfied in Christ. In fact, it's time to remember back to those days that when the Galatians turned to, to God, Partly because he became like them. He related to their Gentile customs. He's saying, we can't live by the law any more than we can be saved by it. And then he references this ailment that's part of this. He says in verse 13 and 14, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And I won't go into the whole text here, but the bottom line is, some think this ailment is that thorn in the flesh that's reflected in other parts of the New Testament. What is Paul's thorn in the flesh? For time's sake, you'll have to go to the website. You can see the six versions of what you can uh, find out it was. Bottom line, whatever it was, whether it's bad eyesight or malaria or epilepsy or whatever, the bottom line is the condition it was in, they received him. They loved him. They took him in. Some think he had malaria and he was getting into the highlands, highlands of Galatia to recover from malaria for, that he got in the coast on a previous trip. And his attitude is this, what has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have gouged your own eyes out and given them to me. Have I become your enemy because of telling the truth? Bottom line is Paul shifts and says, look it, I'm begging you. We're not enemies. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. Now, he's been pretty hard on them. He hadn't changed. They had changed. They had kind of stepped backwards. And some of you can relate to Have you ever spoken hard truth to someone? And then you kind of have to come back and it's the truth. But it was kind of a hard truth, and maybe you could have said it a little kinder or a little differently or a little more gently. And that's what Paul's doing. By the way, I can relate to that. You know, it's usually not what I said that got me in trouble. It's how I said it. And I, I can still relate to Paul. He's kind of trying to backpedal just a bit in, in a different way, come at it a little softer way. And then you see his anguish. They make much of you. In other words, these false teachers, these legalists, they make much of you. They're, they're kind of building you up because they're trying to use you. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. In other words, they use you so they're lifted up. Verse 18, it's always good to be made of, of, of a good purpose, not only when I'm present with you. In other words, hey, I did some things so that you would hear the gospel. It wasn't for my benefit, he's saying. It's for your benefit. Verse 19, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. Bottom line is what he's saying is that you're making us like give birth twice here. You came to faith in Christ. Now you're like climb back in the womb and now you're going to give birth again. That's painful. You want to do that one time. And he's not arguing like a lawyer who's in front of a skeptical jury. He's kind of like a parent pleading with a wayward child. 
He says, in essence, you make me feel like a mom giving birth a second time. And so there's great deep affection for the Galatians. But the verse, or the part of this verse I want you to circle here, we'll conclude with is, until Christ is formed in you. Isn't that an amazing concept? Christ is being formed in you. That verb is uh, morphu. It's, it's the idea of uh, essential form, not just the outer shape, not just looking good on the outside, but God's forming inside of you something different. What is the goal of every believer? I mean, if you read the whole Bible, ultimately the goal of every believer is to become more like Christ. And Chad's going to come and, and the band's going to play here in a second. And I, I, I want you to think through this. God called you. He's redeemed you. He sealed you. He loves you. And Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good. That it also says in Romans that God's conform us to the image of his son. It also says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of God and are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord. How is Christ being formed in you? I mean, how does that practically speaking? Realizing all that good stuff, that's good stuff. But all that good stuff that happens after the cross cannot happen if you're trying to lift the garage door of perfection, of kind of muscling it up for yourself, of, of sin management. There are some people in this room that have seen that idea and have recovered from this in powerful ways. And it comes out in our conversations, doesn't it? I'm done performing. I'm done trying to please God so I feel better about myself. Now, you want to please God. Don't, don't, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But today, are some of you just kind of tired of that? <sighs> I can't do it. You get in a fight with your wife. You say things that are horrible. You wish you could retract the words. And then you beat yourself up for days about, I should have been better. Why did I do that? Today, God says, you lay it at the foot of the cross. I've called you from that. Yeah, but I keep messing up. Story of the Christian life, we're not perfect. We're not perfect. You just remember this one thought. God is more interested in your direction than your perfection. I'm so glad that God forgave me. You know, I can, I can clean up pretty good. I, I use a shave before I, I preach, you know, try to comb my hair, try to do all the right things. But you know what? I can't do it. I can't live the Christian life apart from the Redeemer, the Savior, the lover of my soul, the creator of the universe. And maybe somewhere in your spiritual journey, you've been trying to please God and you've never understood the fundamental principle of the gospel. You're saved by grace. You're going to live by grace. Amen? Let's go out in victory today, not in despair, not in condemnation, not in looking over our shoulder, not in holding to the past, not trying to add to the gospel. Grace.
Grace, not guilt. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We lift your name up. And we're so glad that your grace came down, plucked us out of the miry clay. You've redeemed us. You've saved us. you sealed us. We're sons. We're not just slaves. We are heirs of a future promise that you have sealed us with your Holy Spirit. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We lift up the cross. We surrender. And today, maybe it's your chance to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never, ever done that. There'll be someone that's here to talk with you. Or maybe there's something you just need to pray about and say, i got to give this up or i got to give this over. But we surrender. We wave the white flag today. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We, we praise you. And now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. To the only wise God be glory and power, dominion and majesty now and forevermore. Amen. Go in God's peace.